0: Two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance.
1: Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Amy Whitcroft and Derek Alton. Amy is the Open Data Lead for the Waka Kotahi New Zealand Transport Agency, as well as an advisory board member for the Open Data Charter. Derek is a fellow at Newspeak House in London, England, a public servant for the Canadian government and president of the Canadian Open Data Society, and both share a passion and keen ability at transforming how governments govern. Amy, Derek. Thanks for joining us.
2: It's good to be it's here. Awesome to be here.
1: <laughs> All right. Now, one thing I want to make clear for everyone is that today, Amy and Derek are speaking in a private capacity and not as official representative for any organization. And today, this will be a discussion about open data. It has a really slow uptake. And I ask you, Amy. Derek, why is that? What is the problem with open data? Whoever wants to go first? Well, ladies first, Amy, go nuts. <laughs> oh dear.
0: Um, I would say that I'm not sure that it's fair to say that the uptake of open data is that slow. Um, as, as William Gibson has previously opined, the features here, it's just really unevenly distributed. I'm paraphrasing somewhat um, by adding extra words to it anyway. Uh, <laughs> I think what we've we've seen over the last maybe 10 years or so is that that initial uh, surge of excitement around open data, uh, which happened particularly in developed nations, has sort of slowed as a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been sorted, has been solved, has been opened. Now there are much more, much trickier issues at play and what to open, how to open it, and how to open it well, as opposed to just putting it out there. But there is also um, wonderful work happening in the developing world around opening data. And that's really, that's really coming on a pace. Um, indeed, one could argue that some of those countries are starting to outstrip the developed nations in, in, how, that they're, in how they're doing in open data rankings. Nonetheless, I agree that <clears throat> open data does seem to be something that a lot of people battle to, to grasp or to get excited about, other than sort of a small number of, of we nerds. You're often open government nerds as well. And this is where I'll hand over to Derek to say, Derek, mate, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, geez, no pressure. Um I mean, I think I think there's there's so many different aspects to it. Like it, it's sort of like this big blanket statement of like open data is struggling. I, I completely agree that it, it's a, oh, hold a second. I'm not
1: saying open data is struggling. I'm saying it has a slow uptake. Mm.
2: Okay. What would you say is the difference between that? What's the difference between struggling and having a slow
1: Oh, uptake? you know what? I think you just caught me in my own little corner here. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Make as though I've never interrupted you, which is probably <laughs> what everyone should be thinking right now. For oh, boy.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's different aspects to it as well. Like, I I agree with the statement that it's unevenly distributed. Um, there's an interesting conversation that I haven't had a chance to dig into yet on my Twitter feed um, where sort of the discussion of, like, who has the ability to leverage open data? And that's really unevenly distributed. And And the question of, is yeah. open data... Actually, increasing equity uh, and and within society, or is it a case that the people or organizations that already had advantage are in a better position to really take advantage and leverage open data than other organizations? Um, mm. Which I think is an interesting sort of thing for those of us who are really passionate about open data to wrestle with. Um, I don't know what the answer is necessarily, um, but I think it's an interesting sort of part of the complexity around open data. I, I think there's also uh, you know, issues around the, like there's different audiences that want data for different reasons and in different forms. So there's the, you know, the data scientists, for example, who um, you know, want the pure data that they can then analyze and they're really frustrated because they find that oftentimes data isn't in forms that they can really sink their teeth into. But then you also have like people who are say community organizations that don't have data scientists uh, within their staff who just want data that they can consume in a more digestible fashion, which is a very different format. They're probably not looking for data in a CV format, for example. They want data in a graphic. I, I, I was having, so I did, I did a bit of homework today frantically at the last minute, uh, procrastinating to the last minute, and then interviewed a bunch of friends of mine who work in the open data space. And it was basically like, what do you guys think? And I was talking to uh, a guy that Richard, you and I were just talking to earlier today, Ushnish, uh, with the University of Toronto. And, um, one of the points he made is he was showing me this graph of Canada that had different data points on it. And he says, look, this data is open, but I can't do anything with it as a data scientist because it's a visual graphic. And I'm like, interesting, but a community organization would look at that and be like, Oh, now I see this. This is, this is something I can do with it. And so I think this is one of the complexities of open data as well, is that different communities want it for different reasons. And I think right now we aren't satisfying like we're, we're not good at satisfying all those different perspectives at the same time
1: see and this is where i'm gonna have to come in real quick and disagree with a both he is because the answers you gave me is what i expect although you are here in a private capacity those are answers that i expect from government officials and <laughs> and the only reason let me rephrase the the instigator for this podcast episode is i'm tired of hearing that language because I've been hearing it for 10 years and some people have been hearing it for much longer. And I really fundamentally think that the problem with open data is that no one cares. There's no interest. It's not sexy. This is language that I use all the time, but the problem with open data. And I, by the way, I apologize to the audience. I keep switching back and forth between data and data. And, and I know I make this error all the time, but The problem with open data is there's no interest. It's not sexy. The slow uptake has to do, like I said, more from a marketing position perspective, which is we don't know how to talk about it and make it relevant. You're you're talking about things like data consumption. Sure. There's a lot of people out there like Ushnich and other data scientists that will require it, but they represent such a small percentage of the population. But, but at the same time, like, you're talking about the, this uneven spread and, you know, as well, Amy, you were saying the uneven spread across sort of the world and third world countries are, are doing much better sometimes than developed countries. But at the end of the day, it is such a small element of what can be referred to as the psyche of the general public.
0: And I'd like but, to agree with that, Richard. I think you've hit the nail on the head in that. Um, What's tended to happen is that lovely nerds, and we've seen this in in open government, and lovely nerds all over the world doing nerdy things are often really, really, really bad at marketing, like really bad. (laughs) Um, They're animated by passion. They're animated by kindness in the world to do wonderful things for people, but they're terrible at trying to get the message across about why everybody else should care and, and what's in it for them. I am starting to see around data in general, much more interesting conversations, but that's because... Um, whether you call them stakeholder salesmen or people who are actually doing it well, but, you know, everything from smart cities to digital twins, you know, this is data, 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 data. And suddenly people are starting to see, ah, data is this thing that's important, or Facebook scandal, Facebook scandal, Zoom scandal, Twitter scandal. Data is important. Open data is a subset of that, but I think we're still doing a pretty bad job at explaining why it's important to people in a way that most people can digest and get excited about. And part of the reason for that is it's difficult to find case studies for it a lot of the time. Um, well, get, all, I'm
1: going to stop you real quick. And I know Derek wants to say
0: something, but this is government talk. This case, we don't need case right. studies.
1: People stories. Know, hey, stories.
0: Hang on. I'm, I also come from a civil, civil society advocate. <laughs> so you're not hearing government speak, trust me. <laughs> you're civil society advocate. But, but the thing is, it's if people say, cool, so what do people do with open data? And you're like, uh, we know that people use it. Trying to get people to tell us what they're doing with it can be a little bit difficult for, for people who are working with and around open data. And, and I'd like to sing you know, general stories at people that grab some people, it doesn't grab others. So we do need the community also to, there needs to be a lot more work in bringing the community together. Uh, it's, it's often very disparate, very spread out, lots of great people doing great things. You don't know what the other people are doing. But, but we probably need some amazing marketing, marketing bots and storytelling bots to to join the movement and to help out. I agree.
2: I, I yeah, so many thoughts here. Okay, organize your thoughts. There. Okay, so um, I, I agree that more marketing and storytelling uh, is important, and we should probably do more of that. I actually don't think that's the biggest thing, um, because like one is that the landscape that we sit within has shifted dramatically in the last five ten years, thanks to Facebook and Google and other organizations. And what's yeah. happened is that we now recognize that data has value. And we're seeing it and free open data, just data in general has value. And we're seeing these major corporations are now the most valuable corporations in the world, most valuable organizations in the world in many ways uh, are are leveraging and harvesting data in a huge way to provide uh, experiences for users and and all sorts of different things. So I think there's this rising awareness of people that like data is really important. Um, We're still figuring out exactly why we believe it's really important, but we recognize it's really important because (gasps) these big corporations are monetizing it. But that's not the point I actually want to make. I actually want to make the, uh, and Richard, I know you're going to blast me for this because we had already got into an argument about this on Twitter. But, anyways, I'm going to bring it forward because I think it's important. Um, so, I was uh, asking this question to the people I live with here at Newspeak House, um, a bunch of the fellows, and we we're talking about this. And, and Ed, who's the dean here, made the point. He's like, well, why don't people read more books? You know, why don't people read more books? That's an example of data that's accessible to, to everybody. Um, I mean, literacy I, rates are, in some places, are, are not there. Right, but that's yeah. not, the, that's not the, the, well, I mean, that is part of the angle in, the ter- in terms you can make the argument that the literacy of people to be able to effectively use data might not be there. Maybe mm-hmm. that's, that's one of the arguments you can make. But that wasn't the argument he was making. The argument he was making is that the main reason people don't read more is capacity, they don't have the capacity to read more, uh, interest. <laughs> They're not interested. Why would I read when I can watch a video? Or, you know, do these other things. Um, and, you know, it, it just, it's just not as big of a priority as I think we want it to be for the majority of people because our Ooh. lives are busy. We've got so much going on. We don't want to read any more than we have to. <laughs> we don't want to use data more than we have to. Um, and it isn't going to be until we develop, like, I think this is where artificial intelligence might be really interesting. And, like, for example, with personalized AI, This could become, once that starts moving its way into more mainstream spaces, all of a sudden people will be more easily able to actually consume Mm -hmm. and leverage the massive amounts of data they're producing on a daily basis.
0: True. Although that comes with unbelievably massive ethical issues as well. We already hand over too much of our personal data. And like, you want us to do that more? (laughs) And actually... (laughs) on my machine ain't no way I'm giving anybody more data than I already do. <laughs> but, but these are into the wider issues again as well around data in general, not just open data. And that's
1: exactly the point here because it's so hard to to separate ourselves from the world that we live in, because there are some bold claims that were made that you know people realize that open data is important. That you, you know, Amy, myself, Derek, we're probably very cautious about the data that we'll give to a third party and we might read the terms and conditions of an app or, or whatever. <laughs> Some of us do, but most don't. And even with the Edward Snowden revelations and, and the Cambridge Analytica scandals, I don't think it's really put a dent. Although I will say that perhaps Cambridge Analytica in the U.S. at the very least has brought a lot of focus and a big, big mag, uh, microscope on Facebook in general. But for the most part, I dare you to go on the street and talk to someone, and just say the word data, and just watch their eyes glaze over, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that even, as something as massive as the PRISM program and John Oliver being all on, all on top of it, and an international scandal like Cambridge Analytica, which showed that, that Facebook and is essentially facilitating the use of the data on the platform to manipulate the results of the elections, if that is not enough to get people's eyeballs on open data, my argument is we have to change the way we talk about it because the scale has been there. The scale has been there, but it still does not resonate. So how we talk about it has to fundamentally change. So like this, it goes in the air and stays in the brain. But you've got, there's some assumptions I think you're throwing out there, which I don't know. I'm going to push you
2: on at least. Yeah. Um, one of the assumptions is that people need to know and care about data. That's one assumption. And the second assumption is that, you know, if they don't, bad things will happen. I guess those are two assumptions that are linked to each other, right? And I think a lot of people, yeah, they're aware of Cambridge Analytica. They're aware that these big corporations are tracking their data uh, and, and doing it for using it for all sorts of different things. And the kind of shrug is because, yeah, I know that, but I get better services for it. My life is easier because of that. And, you know, if I don't like them, I can just change to a different corporation. I think it's a case of they're okay with giving up their privacy and their data in exchange for better services, better experiences, a better life, quote unquote, I guess. Um, And the feeling as well that they still have agency. I think people still feel like they have agency. Whether they do or not, we could debate. This gets into, you know, psychology. <laughs> uh, this movie. gets into the matrix, the illusion <laughs> of choice. Absolutely. <laughs> Which I agree with you on. But at the end of the day, I think the majority of people, it's not that they're not aware, it's that they don't care because they got other things they're worrying about and because they recognize that giving away their data gives them better experiences.
0: That's, that's a good point. Although I've, I've seen there's a documentary out now called The Social Dilemma or something like that that's just hit Netflix in New Zealand. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how long it's been out in the rest of the world. And it's been really interesting watching through social media pe- that propagate as people go, Oh my God, have you seen this thing? It's like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, the great hack version too, basically. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't seen it. To be honest, I probably won't watch it because I'm not the target market on this one. I'll just sit there going, well, yeah. I mean, Oh God, we've been screaming about this for years, but it is, it, you know, that that's a be- beautiful example of the right kind of reach is there's been a whole bunch of people screaming about this stuff for years." And it hasn't penetrated the way one potentially not very well-made documentary, depending on who you speak to. Anyway, one documentary was able to reach in a very short period of time.
2: But is it going to change any behavior?
0: I don't know. I don't think it is.
2: I really do not think it is.
0: You'd have to start a big longitudinal study. I've certainly seen a lot of people saying Mm -hmm. that they're rethinking their social media habits and even starting to rethink them or, or at least about how long you spend on something or the fact that you know dark patterns are a thing um i think that's helpful it doesn't have to show this idea that there has to be a linear cause and effect situation i think may be unfair as well you get enough people thinking about it they can start to push for change well let me ask you a question about
1: that amy because this is something i I harp on in my personal life as well which is (laughs) i remember like in the 80s Sort of when in my youth, when I was in my youth, the, the only big documentary that was around was Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky. And it was very dry, it was very boring. It was like going, you're watching the library essentially for you know, a couple of hours. Have you read the book? Oh, the I haven't doc- read the book. way more entertaining than the book. <laughs> it would, it would so have, have to know. be, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 So, so, nevertheless, what I'm trying to get at is eventually, Michael Moore gets onto the scene, does Roger and Me. He does Bowling for Columbine, Fahrenheit 9-11 eventually as well. He does all these documentaries and he almost created a new genre of content, much like how Survivor created a new genre for content in reality TV. Documentaries became popular all of a sudden and mm. became very glamorized and very sophisticated, right? It was not just sitting down with an old gray beard kind of deal. It, you know, you had animations. You had production values. You had great interviews. But so, my question going back to you, uh, Amy, is: Do you think that this new documentary genre, which is popular now more than ever, has driven change and changed behavior, like Derek is saying? And I'm not just talking about oh, data. I'm talking about things like Supersize Me. I'm talking about things Food Inc these kinds of documentaries do you think they've had the impact on society that you th- that has been satisfying to your personal value
0: system like i'm not i'm not an anthropologist i'm not a sociologist and i haven't been doing longitudinal studies on this stuff so i don't know for the short term. <laughs> but that's not my question uh, right? yeah, to you but personally but, but, uh, watching watching the conversations that they've caused in um, mainstream media uh, in in Places where it's not just the usual suspects happily yelling at each other over fences or congratulating each other on how clever they are and that no one will listen to them, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> all being sad. But you know, it's a really big to see that reach, to see the conversations broaden out, and I think that that's incredibly important. If it takes mediums like this for that to happen, fantastic. I'm I'm not going to sit here in judgment of mediums that work for people and and you know how they live their lives and the way that they take information in. I think as long as the documentaries are clear when they're biased, and they're always biased, are, are clear what the bias is. That's, that's the only thing I care about. Um, and, and you can generally tell quite quickly what the bias is, but, you know, it's good to be clear about that. And, and then tell, tell people the information. It, it does make it so much more entertaining, so much more digestible, rather than saying to people, well, you should read these 20 academic papers, and if you haven't read them well, you don't really know what you're talking about, so shut up. I don't know that that helps the situation at all.
2: I, I actually would argue that, Uh, In today's world, influencers are more influential Eh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) influential, uh, than the documentaries themselves. Um, That being said, I I, I do want to sort of agree with something Amy said earlier about this not being a linear thing. And I I do actually I'm going to reference my masters. (laughs) 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 Um,
1: So thanks for making this sexy once again, Derek. (laughs) Very much appreciated. (laughs) Um, But
2: like so there's this really interesting thing that happens where like how does human behavior work right and so we often talk about human beings as being rational logical creatures um and now you know we're realizing that the majority of our behavior isn't driven by logic isn't driven by rationality and so the next big thing was emotions um and you know emotions being this big driver of behavior and then the rise of behavioral economics which is why i did a bunch of my master's research on really said well, actually more than logic and reason more than emotions the vast majority of our behavior is actually instinctual it's it's stuff we do subconsciously through habits and routines and habits and routines are really developed because of context cultural context uh structural context the way you design uh and i mean the social dilemma actually talks about this so there's there's that it, it does sort of break in there but the point is this how does this sort of tie back to what we're talking about before um what, hap- what I, you often see happen is that the, the shift of uh, opinion happens because of, you know, stuff like these conversations we're having, social dilemma, different world events, the rise of Facebook and Google and, and the influence they have, you know, Cambridge Analytica. All these things, all these things are um, shifting the way we think about things. But that's yes. not going to shift our behavior. There's going to be a, a lag. And the lag happens because it, we have to start changing our structures and our systems and our culture and that takes a long time uh and and so what we're in right now is this kind of space so what my master's thesis actually actually looked at was this concept called the intention behavior gap which is exactly what it sounds like the gap between what we want to do and what we actually do Been heavily studied in health how did you call that again the intention behavior gap okay google it look it up it's it's a concept in psychology um, and, uh, it's been heavily studied in, uh, around healthy behavior. It's been heavily studied, uh, around, um, green, um, purchasing. Uh, I actually studied it in the context of, uh, people building relationships and like, uh, deepening friendship specifically, uh, cause that's my jam. Um, but the key thing is that that's the space we're in right now where people's intentions are shifting, but there's going to be a delay in the shift to the behavior until, Really shift uh, the way we structure society, the way culture, you know, is, is manifests itself. Um, until we get to the point where the easiest thing to do is uh, to have a different relationship with our data, and and I mean, this is stuff that you're starting to see happen. I mean, in theory, GDPR. I mean, uh, now that I'm in um, in the UK, I can speak a bit more to that. It, you 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 know, they're doing stuff to try to shift the experience of users around their data. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's actually not going to be hugely effective because you get fatigue around all the boxes you have to click. It's like the consent forms. Yeah, 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 whatever. I just want to get my thing. Um, But I think we're going to get there.
0: Absolutely. And I'd I'd like to to, to build on that. Um, So all of these systems are, these are complex systems, right, that are all interacting with each other. And the thing with complex systems is you don't get linear effects. The effects will be emergent and we cannot see what they are yet. Um, We know that, differences will be made. How they end up. Sometimes you can't see stuff coming and then certain people get elected as presidents and, and everyone's very surprised. Or or something, for example. Just <laughs> just something random. Oh my god.
1: That's yeah. Not too <laughs> random random.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so so there there is that. I think just the more conversation, it's kind of like voting. I don't necessarily care who you vote for, but I want you to vote. Same with these kinds of conversations. I don't necessarily care about where you come down on on the issue. I just want people thinking about the issue and talking about it, um, and and nutting it out together, because I think that that's how we end up in a situation that will be most optimal for each of the civilizations and societies grappling with it. Because there is no right answer. You know, much as I talk about data rights and data ethics and data justice, it does presume that there is one ethical mode that is optimal when it comes to dealing with data. And it's like, well, no, it's going to depend on your community, your country, your state, your, your, civilize, your wider civilization, that's all going to get really interesting. And this is where um, some of these new ways that people are thinking about data. So GDPR and the consumer data rights legislation, sorry, government here again, um, <laughs> will be really, will, are, are coming in and they're really interesting. We've also got things like indigenous data sovereignty mm. um, conversations which are starting, which will have a market effect on open data, but also shared data and closed data and, and all of our data. But there are also these new models of how how we give power um, back to people. Oh, sorry, how we give yeah no how we give people power back around their data. Thank you. That sentence yeah, yeah. was stranger than it should have been. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not that's not saying you know please please click on this you know I accept your cookies or I can't actually look at your site because the dark pattern means the bloody cookie banners. Sorry. Are you okay? Bloody is fine in in, in Canada. Oh, okay. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs>
2: We're way more laid <laughs> <way> back.
0: <laughs> um, but you know that that's a a classic example of a dark pattern, and I've been thinking about dark patterns a lot because they interact really strongly with data. Anyway, um, but new models like data trusts and you know data collectors and collaboratives and all of those kinds of things as ways well for people to have a bit more stewardship and ownership over their data. the 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 cookie situation was more about trying to get. Websites to behave slightly better, right? As opposed to trying to give power, I think so much back to people because, as you say, it's just a flood of cookie stuff. And most of the time, people are just like, "Oh, whatever, fine." I'm just clicking, accept. Oh,
1: oh, I'll I'll close the website. Honestly, I will. (laughs) I will find alternative ways to to get the information I need. You haven't experienced Uh, GDPR until you come to Europe, my
2: friend. Oh, it's even every single website. Every single time you go to the website, every single time
1: pop-up, mm-hmm.
2: pop pop-up, pop-up, every right. single
1: time. And it's yeah. about center on your data. Well, it's uh, a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the anti-spam laws that they introduced in Canada, I think it was, I'll say 15, 20 years ago, and in the United States at the same time. And what was happening is people were calling into the anti-spam hotline, but people didn't realize that the provisions and the laws said that, sure, private companies can't market to you if you if you're on that list but it allowed this litany of other kinds of organizations that could churches not-for-profits charities political groups and all of a sudden they had essentially a government-made list of people with confirmed addresses and phone numbers that they could go to and reach out for so ironically while the gdpr perhaps is meant to help people it probably hurts people at the same time. And same thing with these anti-spam laws that happened, like I said, about 20 years ago. And now, I don't know if you're like me, if, if your phone number is not programmed in my phone or if the phone call comes up as unknown, I don't answer it anymore. I don't even have a voicemail box anymore. I, it's,
2: uh,
0: this is why you, you never pick it. up the phone when I called. Now, <laughs> I didn't like me, yeah, I'm just not on your
2: phone.
0: i right. the same. everything and and my voicemail says don't leave voicemails yeah So (laughs) so i want to go back to something
1: that derek said earlier because you bring up a good point which was i was making assumptions that it is important for the public to be data literate and know the the issues around data and the existence of open data so I remember when I first got into the conversation, like I said, about 10 years ago, the narrative that I was using, and that was being used a lot of the times by, by political um, uh, allies, was that essentially open data was, should be viewed like a, a leading actor or actress. It was Brad Pitt, it was Angela Jolie. There, it's gonna change the world, it's gonna revolutionize the economy, and it's gonna be great and it's gonna be awesome. And like I said, it was a leading role. For open data, in particular, and and I was reciting that that there you go, yeah. Sorry, we're we're also sort of talking to each other via chat here. And Amy was, you say it to the people, say it to the people instead of just writing it to both me
0: and and Derek here. <laughs> no, I just didn't want to interrupt Richard, but but it's it's the classic hype cycle. It's the new shiny thing. And it's going to be the best thing ever. Yeah. And it's going to save the world and make for like, oh my god, it, everything will be the universe will be a bright and shiny thing. And then, and then some stuff happens, and then you hit the trough of disillusionment, and then you sort of get into the slow, like we're maturing, you're getting slightly better at this over time. Like, anyway, classic hype cycle. It was going to be the shiny thing, and then it wasn't.
1: And and again, <laughs> Derek, say what you were going to say. You got to stop <laughs> writing stuff right now because this is good stuff.
0: <laughs> okay, so,
1: so tell. Basically, <laughs> my point is that
2: I I can agree the classic hype cycle. I think what's actually going to happen, or not even what I think, is, what is what is actually happening is that open data is more like the director or the producer. And what I mean by that is it's behind the scenes, but it's shaping what you see on the screen. Even though you yeah. don't see open data, it is hugely influential in, and, and we know this now because like so much of, you know, our, our, even the big companies are leveraging open data to shape how they do things. Um, if you don't see it, it's behind the scenes.
1: And it's but funny. It's key, oh, go ahead, Amy, go ahead.
0: It's a key enabler, but that's, that's data in general. You know, I, I, I like to joke that dataism is the new religion. Is Somehow we've all, well, those of us who think about data, people have ended up worshipping at, at the foot of the God's data and f- have totally forgotten that the whole point of data is as an enabler to try and improve our lives. And, and we just need to be a bit careful of that, I think. And, and open data is the same.
1: And, and yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, we don't want to become idolaters, I believe is the term. You know, <laughs> the, the sort of we have a new God now all of a sudden. That's a sin, Richard. How could you suggest that? Well, there but a you go.
2: Program no less.
1: <laughs> but that's what Amy's <laughs> saying is is, and I think that's the, the realization. I think that we're just sort of talking about all of a sudden that open data is not a panacea. It is. It cannot live by itself. It can't carry a movie, right? <laughs> right. And and I'm gonna challenge Derek a little bit on the director and the producer thing because. If we're going to go, I like the analogy here because it's pretty much in my wheelhouse. And I think it's also a conversation that a lot of people who may not even be familiar with data can can associate with. A director and a producer has a very active role in the creation of a movie or a TV show. I don't even think open data is going to be that significant in the big scheme of things. I think in that context it becomes more originally it's funny i was gonna go with like data open data in particular is more like a character actor or a supporting actor but if i look at i I like what you were saying that it's more behind the scenes and i think it might be more in the context perhaps of like like unionized staff like you need you need your lighting guy you know you gotta make (laughs) stars look good right Or I think it might be more even a rung or two lower in terms of influence than a director or producer. I think it it depends on how you define
2: open data. So like uh, where my mind went is open source, open source software. Now, do we count open source software as a type of open data? I would argue we do. Um, And open source software has become the foundational architecture for the majority of tech that we use did the digital like the internet sized based kind of tech not even internet based tech oh just the right. linux
1: kernel alone is powering yeah. freaking so, you know
2: I, i'm holding my smartphone here like this this most like the huge amounts of this tech is open source like that's yeah. what i mean by the director the producer and you're right maybe i'm giving it too much influence but it is the foundation on which you know our digital world lives is open source um protocols and software um, and, and that, like, that cannot be understated how influential that is. And it's kind of just happened very passively just because it was convenient and it helped companies save a lot of money and move more quickly. So they just did it. And it's just quietly happened. And in many ways, the crazy thing is that government hasn't been the biggest driver of open source, not even by a long shot. It's the yeah. private sector. The private sector has been driving the use of open source and, and just really steering the bus on this, which is... I-
0: Okay, oh, go ahead.
2: Go, sorry, go ahead, Amy.
0: No worries, and that brings up something that, I, that I've been wanting to say. Firstly, thanks for the open source reference. I couldn't agree more. The second thing is, for a long time, open data has been predominantly the preserve of governments in terms of releasing it. You know, it's, it's generally referred to as open government data, and people instantly, their eyes sort of switch off because they hear the word government as well and go, oh, I don't care, other than being upset about something. But what I'm starting to see—that's <laughs> right? Um, but what I'm starting to see is, uh, and, and I've been yelling about it for years, and talking with the private sector about it for years, but saying, okay, you use open data, but also like join the party, give back. And I'm seeing more and more private sector companies saying, we actually do want to start releasing open data as well, because we understand that it brings benefit to the system, because we want to start being better corporate actors, and it helps us look good, and we're tired of you know always looking like the bad guys, blah blah blah. But they also realize it helps them do things like influence the state of play, influence Mm. the state of the art. Suddenly they're involved and they're in the thick of it. And I think that that is potentially an inflection point. I'm just starting to see it properly now, the beginnings of it now. But that might be an inflection point where open data suddenly starts to get quite sexy as well, because they have some quite sexy data and they also have expertise in telling the stories and putting out the press releases and making the shiny pretty to make sure that everybody knows that they're being awesome and they're doing this cool stuff.
2: It, it's so that might that
0: be really interesting to watch.
2: I mean, there is different types of data, though. Because like, yeah. it's interesting, basically what you see happening is the data that can be monetized will stay closed. And the mm. data that, are, like there's a cost-benefit analysis. Can, mm. is, it, is it more valuable for me as a company to protect this data and, and monetize it? or to release it and make it public? Where do I get more? And so data is gonna fall on either side of that spectrum. Yeah. Uh, I think more like dynamic data tied to behavior is probably gonna become monetized more and, and more um, stagnant data. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, <laughs> data that does is not dynamic, whatever. There's a name for it that I'm forgetting because it's late, um, <laughs> but, but that strong. data will become much more more uh, open. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, we may see, you know, full real time you pay for, but but aggregated to 15 minutes or one day or monthly intervals, you may get for free. But but watch, there will also be companies where they will say, we could monetize this, but we are going to open it because we do think that there is enormous social value in doing so. I, I know this because I'm I'm hearing these conversations, but some will get monetized as well. And that's, that's okay too. The idea is to have a whole group of sectors joining the party. So it's not just governments on one side with their free data. And the private sector on the other side with their monetized data and everybody throwing stuff at each other over the fence. Well,
2: this I is think. where I, I must want to tr- channel like Tracy L'Orio. Uh, I think. You probably- <laughs> and, and for
1: those listening, Tracy L'Orio is a Canadian sort of luminary and open gov and open data. She's been in the space for she's been in the space for decades and uh please continue channeling her <laughs> Just yeah. trying to find.
2: i mean she's a lot of fun she'd be a fun person to that uh, she is a
1: big personality i want i person- want her on camera and on a mic whenever yeah, i have a chance absolutely. i don't necessarily <laughs> agree with everything she says but man talking about sexy and, and bringing drama to the conversation oh she's great at that she's the best, absolutely she's i mean she's one of the ones who really brought me
2: into this space yeah. seeing her speakers and anyway so The thing that Tracy has hammered into me again and again and again is like open data as a concept is a newer sort of word or phrase, I guess, concept title. Mm -hmm. But It's like in the natural sciences, they've been doing this for like the the whole like scientific research space is like, you know, centuries old of people sharing data with each other and, and making it more open. And I mean, she always talks about geospatial space. The geospatial space has been, you know, releasing weather data and geography data for for decades and decades and decades. And it's important to note the government has been a key actor in that space, both as a funder, uh, but also as a key player in collecting and sharing data as well. But like, that, that there's a long history to
1: that. Um, and that's I think important to note when we talk about the, the rise. Yeah. Of this. So there's a couple of things I want to discuss w- w- before we close out the episode here. And one of them, I do want to answer the question of, is it important for people Once again, the role of open data is like, is it important for every single Tom, Dick and Harry out there, every single child to understand an open data? And I'll give you an example, an analogy of what I'm referring to. We already, let me rephrase. I brought up the matrix already once in this conversation. I'll bring it up a second time. In the matrix reloaded, there's a scene between Neo and one of the old wise men that's on the council. And it's late at night and they're having a conversation and the old wise man, he's like, Neil, you see that, that machine over there? It's, it's, it's for recycling our water. I don't know how it works, but I know that it's important that it does work. Cool. And I really like that distinction a little bit of sort of between the practitioner and, and the general public a little bit, that even if you're in a high-ranking position, you don't necessarily need to know how open data works. But you need to know that it's important that it does, and I don't
0: think that we're quite there yet. I'd I'd like to say it's it's kind of up there with people who say everyone should learn to code. I absolutely don't believe everyone should learn to mm. code, but but I would really? say that yeah, but that that can be that's a that's a rant of mine, mate. <laughs> <laughs> this is <actually> our next <laughs> episode, <laughs> Amy's rant. Our all right. Stuff to anyway, but. But more seriously, I think in the same way that we could teach all kids at school, you know, the basics of critical thinking, what are the 11 major, you know, logical fallacies, how to interrogate an argument, teach them how how a gene works. I come from a molecular biology background, so I would say that. But, you know, the very basics of like, this is what DNA is, this is what protein is, you're going to need to know this stuff. And also... If, you're, if you have a question, there's the stuff called data that you can go to, which you can interrogate in a couple of ways. And hey, a whole bunch of it is available on the internet for free. That's probably about as far as you would need to go with, with young people. And then those who get more interested in it, you can take them further and further down a path into becoming experts. But I think it's important that people know it's there in the same way that you know Wikipedia exists. You could also say there are these things called open data registers for if you want that kind of data.
1: Okay, Derek, do you have anything on this before I switch it up a little?
2: I mean, I, I agree with what Amy's saying. Um, I think that uh, th- where the public needs to know things is where it becomes political. Uh, where we're talking about like, policy decisions or, or th- that higher level thing, that's where we need the public to have an understanding that this is important. And I think this is actually wrapped up and to a certain extent in a broader sort of debate political and philosophical debate around ownership, public ownership versus private ownership. Uh, Cause it's really what we're talking about. You can replace data with like healthcare <laughs> or like anything. And it, it's, it's the same type of debate. So maybe that in some ways, that's the more important debate to have. Um, and in some ways we are having it. I mean, you see it play out in elections all the time. Um, so,
1: okay. So uh, we do need to start wrapping up, but we were on a really fun thread earlier that I want to end on, which is sort of this, movie analogy for the world that we live in and we had pretty much agreed that open data and open data are not the leading actor of a movie and then we expanded on it and there are some things that i wrote down here because i like there's a lot of players here so you mentioned open source derek as well as did as well as you amy and actually i think open source might not be sort of the director or anything along those lines it's the equipment it's the cameras it's the rigging it's the lights the um the studio and by that i mean sort of a, a, a syncope which is christopher nolan's sort of production house and, and studio some of the big ones obviously we know like warner brothers and whatnot actually no let me rephrase not warner brothers um, uh paramount i believe yeah I'm getting way off topic. I forget which ones they all are, but the studios are the, it's like open government is a culture. Like what kind of movie are we going to be making? How much money are we going to budget for this one movie versus this other movie? It sort of really sets the direction quite a bit. The um, uh, uh, digital government, right? The digital government movement, people like you, Derek, and people like you, Amy, that are inside the halls, that are creating government as a platform and things of that nature, you're the distributor.
0: You (laughs) are,
1: uh, that's where the Warner Brothers and the Paramounts come in. You buy the movie from the studio, like a syncope, and you distribute it. And then, and that's also like Netflix would fall into that category as well. And I think when it comes to like the actors, you're looking at civil society, you're looking at the private sector, you're looking at the people that are putting the movie together, that are all really sort of important. And I don't know where the screenwriter or the scriptwriter comes into this conversation. And, and But I don't know. I, this is, these are just things I really just thought about now that
0: I want you guys to discuss and, and, and see if we can improve on. Writer, sorry, I was saying the scriptwriters probably our politicians to some extent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, good call. Yeah. I'd like to say I'd, I'd put data in there with um the I'd, I'd put data in there with the software and the tech so quite literally yeah. it's it's the stuff that you use to make yeah. everything else happen yeah um and i think that there is danger to be had both in conflating software and data and and hardware but there's also a huge danger in separating them out too much i see a lot of siloed battles that, that shouldn't be happening it's all Good part point. of a
2: pipeline yeah uh, the question that i ask to i guess both of you is where would you place, in this metaphor, where would you place Facebook? Where would you place Google? It's a movie.
1: Are they? (laughs) Seriously, I (laughs) would put it, it's a movie. It's a movie. Yeah, like Mark Zuckerberg, going back to the screenwriter, they're the ones, who you know, screenwriter and director, like uh, Kevin Smith, famous writer, director. I would put sort of Mark Zuckerberg in that sort of context. And and then you have the, the technology, which is used, although in this case it's private uh mm. as opposed to open source the the studio would be yeah you know, they sort of created their own studio a little bit which is kind of like how Netflix is creating their own movies now and mm. although they're not hiring their own directors.
2: Anyway. I mean I, I have a whole like conversation point about you know is you know are these private sector entities becoming the government of the future? Oh god I they are well, they well, are they're,
0: they're trying they're trying really hard, <laughs> <and I> think, <laughs> hard, that hard Yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, you're so right, Amy. Like, I definitely see another episode here uh, for a number of different reasons. This has been by far, I, this is I think like around my 45th, 46th episode that I have recorded. This is the one I've had the most fun in. I really like this dynamic a lot more than just a straight interview style. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun this way. So don't. I will ask on you guys to come on. I will ask you guys to come back on again soon. You're stuck with me. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, you're right, Derek. I think the the definitely, and, and I would argue that people are relying on these large technology mm. platforms more than they're relying on the government a lot of the times.
0: Well, I, I, I would, I disagree with that slightly. I think they think that because a lot of our reliance on government is stuff we can't see. It's like sewerage working, roads being mm. there, electricity <laughs> yeah. systems working. You know all of that kind of stuff, but that's part of the problem. Is is, is it's put as the private sector? These companies are you know shiny and amazing, and how you live your life, and this is the future. And poor little government gets left out in the background, going, "Okay, look, we might look kind of boring, but we're actually kind of awesome." <laughs> the storytelling again. But but, but, <laughs> but let me. There's but some let. Serious land grabbing going on by by um some of these big corporations, and it scares the uh, the living daylights out of me. I want to clarify
1: what I meant by um. Uh, uh, relying on, on those large technology platforms more than government. You're absolutely right. From an infrastructure perspective and how your taxes are paid, it's, it's different. But you have the Googles and the alphabets of the world that are creating new communities or trying to create new communities around the world. Um, but when it comes to things like there's an application in Canada called COVID Alert, which is used to not do contact tracing, but the closest thing to help people realize or understand or know when they've been in close contact with somebody with the coronavirus, which would not exist if it wasn't for Google or Apple. Uh, Google has done an insanely amazing job with Google Maps and governments are relying, Like people are going and using Google Maps to find out where to vote, right? There's a lot of these elements that people are using more than government. They're not going to elections.ca to find out where to vote or how to register, they'll use Google kind of deal and that de- and right now i do believe they're much like how google put together the i think it was called the google transit feed system which became eventually the general transit feed system which what is what powers these transit apps i think google's trying to do that right now with polling stations and with uh, uh, voting locations and things that like they're trying to standardize it across uh, at least the western world
2: yeah and, and i mean it's more and more of infrastructure we depend upon moves into the digital space or that there's a whole new set of infrastructure in the digital space that we're becoming increasingly dependent upon a lot of that infrastructure is being driven by these these big tech companies i mean a lot of it is also open source which is kind of this weird new space because open source isn't public isn't private it's kind of its own thing Mm. um but yeah it's things are changing and it's it's going to be interesting to see how, and I mean, COVID's really making this front and center, right? COVID has forced the world way more into the digital space than we've ever been before and way more dependent upon uh, digital infrastructure than we ever have been before.
1: Well, this has definitely been a, a reoccurring theme for all the episodes that I've done in the last uh, four or five months for the podcast, which is as an open government and open data practitioner we're all sort of in agreement that in a way the coronavirus sort of if there's a silver lining to the pandemic is that it's really helped push our mandate forward much more quickly than i think it ever has just look at what it's done in terms of tele, teleworking right telecommuting so i think with what's, what's the saying of like in disaster lies opportunity and um and i think yeah it's present anybody yeah. else I'm not
2: sure if it's a good thing or not.
1: <laughs> it depends how it's used, right? It's, it's happening.
2: It's 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 and it cuts both positively and negatively.
1: Well, if you um, go the pr- price gouging of disasters, then obviously it's no good. But
2: huge centralization of power and resources that's happening right now. Yeah, incredible, true. incredible centralization of power and resources.
0: But also uh, uh, some opening up and sharing of data that's also unprecedented between various governments and, and other bodies and and collaboration in ways that we haven't seen before either i think we have to be careful about um ascribing something as simple as good or bad to massive complex and emerging right, system yeah,
2: yeah. no, you're not
0: gonna, it. yeah. it's gonna get weirder faster but it was already getting <laughs> fast it's just accelerated it. oh this i don't know like i wish
1: i was 10 years 15 years younger because man, these are exciting times that we're in. And once again, it may seem a little sadistic to say it that way, but compared to, and we really got to start thinking about wrapping up because we could definitely talk for hours about this kind of stuff. But there's definitely an element, like the, the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, and 90s were for the most part, very quiet decades. And, and things have changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Hey, I mean, and-
0: Oh, Go for it. I'll finish off with my final point and then. Yeah, I was just going to say,
2: I, I agree that exciting in, in, in a more neutral term in the sense of like, it's very energetic. There's a lot of, it's very dynamic. Things are happening. And the COVID is forcing that in all sorts of different ways. And then like, for me, like we like climate change is a giant wave that's hiding behind COVID.
1: Yeah. Like, a, like a, kind of exactly. for decades you're so right there and again i think i want to clarify my comment from a moment ago about it's about me saying it's exciting i'm saying it exciting like do you guys remember the movie uh independence day <laughs> yes right so at one point i'll say maybe uh, three quarters of the way in uh, uh the president walks into sort of area 51 and he meets brent spiner the the wild-haired scientist and he's like this has been amazing. Like for the last 50 years, this place has been like a dead zone. But ever since these aliens came around, all the gadgets started working and the lights are turning on. It's, it's been a really exciting time. And then the president uh, is like, dude, like billions of people have died in the last 24 hours. Like, what? like calm down. <laughs> this is not a good thing. But I feel like that scientist, that Brent Spiner scientist sometimes from Independence Day in these, uh, these trying times anyway. Mm.
0: And, 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 and yeah, I, I think that's that's beautifully put, both of you. I'd say this could also be viewed as a, an exciting time in a positive sense in that there are a whole bunch of watershed moments happening at the moment, inflection points for our set of civilizations. But I would argue that much as it may seem like we as members of the, the public have less choice and less agency than ever before, I'd suggest that that's not actually true. I think we have more power than we've in previous generations have had to truly shift things in the directions that we want. We may be being sold stories of inevitability, but they're not true. So, you know, I just <laughs> want to think of that there is <laughs> here we can grab stuff by the lapels and shift stuff. And Derek, do you have any sort of parting words before we close this out?
2: I mean, I don't know how I can follow that up, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> A- amen, sister? <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, well, then I've said everything that I need to say, but before I actually do close out the episode, I do want to give each of you the opportunity to tell the audience how they can reach you if they want to find out more information, sort of share, you know, your handles or wherever they, they, they can reach you. So we'll
0: start with Amy again. Oh, God damn it. Sorry, I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, see, we'll,
1: we'll see if it'll pass through the filters. Gosh, that's <laughs>
0: Gosh, thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm all over the internet, but probably the easiest way to find me will be on Twitter at T-E-H underscore A-I-M double E. Mm. Um, and also just Google me. I'm on LinkedIn, for example. I'm not on Facebook and I'm not on, on, on Instagram because I'm ancient and cynical. but but otherwise I'm super contactable.
1: (laughs) And you know what? You and me both, I deleted my Facebook profile a long time ago and I refuse to do Facebook products. And I also want to tell our audience a little bit for a couple of things. When you see Amy's name, it is not a typo. She prefers to write her name with a lowercase a to start her name. It's not a capital A. So when you see it written online, when you see it written in the write-up, which I will make a note in this episode description that Amy prefers to have a lowercase a. It is not me writing with like disrespect for her name because I can't even capitalize it. It really is how she prefers the presentation of her name. I'm right, Amy, about this? Yeah, no, yes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All
2: right, Derek, you're up next. Um, I, I mean, you can try to Google me. Uh, you will probably come up with Derek Alton Walcott, who's a famous poet. Um, so I'm not nearly as famous uh, as Amy or Derek Alton Walcott, um, but you can find me on Twitter uh, at Derek D E R E K Alton A L B O N, uh, and I'm I'm usually pretty active on Twitter. Um,
1: yeah, that's all right. Can- so so thanks guys for for doing this atypical episode podcast. Uh, at least for me, anyways, this is the first time I've really taken up uh, this format. But I think it was great. I really enjoyed it. I think it was very clear and my how animated I get. But uh, so I want to thank you guys for doing this and, and trying something
0: new. So thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to more of these. So many things. <laughs> <laughs> to <things>. are <laughs> same, <time.
1: laughs> same time tomorrow. <laughs> yeah,
0: same bad time,
1: same bad channel for those who understand the uh, the reference. Um, So as usual, not only do I want to thank the guests for being here today, but I want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.